0: Agamemnon, what more do you want? Your tents are filled with bronze and with fair women. For whenever we take a town, we give you the pick of them. Would you have yet more gold, which some Trojan is to give you as a ransom for his son? When I, or another Achaean, has taken him prisoner? Or is it some young girl to hide and lie with? It is not well that you, the ruler of the Achaeans, should bring them into such misery. Weakling cowards, let us sail home and leave this man here at Troy to stew in his own prizes of honor and discover whether we were of any service to him or no. Achilles is a much better man than he is and see how he has treated him, robbing him of his prize and keeping it to himself. Achilles takes it meekly and shows no fight. If he did, son of Atreus, you would never again insult him.
1: You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex. Uh, and
2: I'm Kelton. Mm-hmm. Charmed to be here.
1: And we're listening to Thersites' speech from Book 2 of the Iliad, translated by Samuel Butler. So, this poem's audience would have been events hosted by Anatolian Greek aristocrats, The genre of epic poetry centers on relating the heroic deeds of kings and nobles. So at least on the surface level, the text will always praise the inherent self-worth of the nobility.
2: Oh, my lord, you're so smart, and so are all people like you, who are also (laughs) smart and good and pure.
1: No, exactly. So the backstory here is that Agamemnon, leader of the Greeks at Troy, tried to test his army's loyalty. He told them all to pack up and go home. Expecting that they would loyally say, no, we will stay here and fight to the death. I think I had a situation
2: like this with one of my bosses
1: at one
2: point, (laughs) you know. Yeah, he's like, oh, you can go home if you want. He's like, oh, sweet, okay, yeah. yeah exactly. Oh.
1: <laughs> they all fail the test by taking him seriously. In context? You know, in the, in the context of a song sung for lords. The selfishness and cowardice of these common soldiers should disgust us. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. these peasants want to live their own lives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grow the grade that I yeah. take from them.
2: Well, you got to make sure that everybody knows how gross it is to, you know, ask your lord uh, to
1: live. (laughs) Exactly. So while the Greek soldiers are rushing back to the ships, it becomes Odysseus's job to get them back to the front lines. So in order to give orders on Agamemnon's behalf, he takes Agamemnon's scepter. Odysseus flung his cloak from him and set off to run. His squire Eurybates, a man of Ithaca who waited on him, took charge of the cloak, whereon Odysseus went straight up to Agamemnon and received from him his ancestral imperishable staff. With this he went about, among the ships of the Achaeans. Whenever he met a king or a chieftain, he stood by him and spoke him fairly.
3: Sir, said he, this flight is cowardly and unworthy.
1: But when he came across some man from some village who was making a noise, he struck him with a staff and rebuked him, saying,
3: Listen to better men than yourself. You are a coward and no warrior. You are nobody, either in fight or council. We cannot all be kings. It is not well that there should be many masters. One man must be supreme. One king to whom the son of scheming Kronos has given the scepter and divine laws to rule
2: over you
1: all. So the scepter isn't just a symbol of authority. It's also the practical basis for that authority. (laughs) In terms just, of literally conking
2: people on the head. Just beating people with this symbol of my authority. <laughs> yeah. Just the president of the United States running around with the podium with the
1: presidential seal just smashing people. <laughs> <Exactly>. Aha! <laughs> so when I said hitting people over the head with the symbolism, what I meant was... <laughs> so, in Odysseus's language, aristocrats commit cowardly acts, but commoners are cowards.
2: I also just really enjoy the disparity between, you know, like meeting a king and like like whispering in his ear, you know, some sweet nothings about how he should go back to fight and then just like beating a random dude, you know.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. He says, We can't all be kings. That is how kingship works. It's funny because every major character in the Iliad is king of somewhere. So essentially one guy gets to be in charge because he has a stick that he can hit you with. So anyway, Odysseus gets almost everyone to shut up. But Thersites still went on, wagging his unbridled tongue, a monger of sedition a railer against all who were in authority. He was the ugliest man of all those that came before Troy, bandy-legged, lame of one foot, with his two shoulders rounded and hunched up over his chest. His head ran up to a point, but there was little hair on the top of it. With a shrill, squeaky voice, he began heaping his abuse on Agamemnon.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Nobles are children. This was written for children. <laughs> no, exactly. And the stupid, dumb, <laughs> ugly commoner. He's just dumb, He's just ugly. He's just so ugly. How ugly is he? <laughs> his head is. It looks like a point. Like like a point. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
2: Does that make him cowardly? Oh, super duper. Yeah, exactly. He'd be running away all the time. If it wasn't for his whack ass
0: foot. <laughs> Bandy-legged. That's <laughs> so petty. <laughs> right. This is so dumb.
1: <laughs> so the text describes the Recites as not just poor and impudent, but also extremely ugly. He is the antithesis of heroic manhood. So elsewhere in the Iliad, even when the text wants us to disdain the behavior of aristocratic characters like Paris, who is portrayed as cowardly and effeminate, the language of the Iliad still describes him as strong, beautiful, and godlike, because, of course, he is part of the royal family of Troy. Anyway, Thericides says out loud what everyone else is thinking, which is the quote from the beginning. Essentially, that Agamemnon is taking all the best loot, that his war is only possible because all the common foot soldiers fighting his war haven't seen their families for nine years, and that Agamemnon was stupid to piss off Achilles. Thericides calls the soldiers cowards for obeying Agamemnon, instead of having the courage to defy him. Got a lot of mixed messages. No, exactly, because Odysseus just called them cowards for... Also obeying Agamemnon. Yep, yep. (laughs) So Thersites dares these soldiers to call it a general strike, knowing that kings can't fight their wars without their subjects.
2: It would be very funny to watch, you know. (laughs) Exactly. It'd be like a real version of Undercover Boss, not the propaganda (laughs) stuff. You know, where they make them look like they're actually doing stuff. But like, you know, it's like a king, you know, huffing and puffing, (laughs) trying to
1: ride a horse. Yeah, just like trying to like cook food or whatever. This poses an existential threat, not just to Agamemnon and his campaign, but also to the Homeric narrative. Because if gazillions of anonymous peasants desert the army, there won't be any heroic wartime deeds of nobles to sing a poem about. So, we will return to the section of the Iliad, but first... So, this episode is going to be about part of the process for getting to this extremely stratified uh, and very violent society. Ah! (laughs) Uh. So, I'm in the process of moving the border between seasons 1 and 2 from the beginning of the Ubaid period to the end, that is, to about 4500 BCE. The middle of the 5th millennium BCE marks an inflection point in the prehistory of Mesopotamia. From now on, all the same social, economic, and political trends we've been talking about will not only continue, but accelerate. Everything we've described so far would be recognizable to the average pottery Neolithic villager. After all, for all the change we've described, Ubaid culture was only recombining aspects of technology and social organization that were over a millennium old at this point. However, we're headed into one of the most dynamic periods in pre-modern history, the Uruk period in the south between about 4200 and 3100 BCE, and the late Chalcolithic period in the north between about 4,500 and 3,000 BCE, will see not only the first cities, but also an explosion of administrative technology to allow increasingly complex bureaucracies to manage these new urban economies, eventually culminating in the invention of writing. These bureaucratic institutional households, which academics tend to call temples, but which were political as much as religious organizations, controlled much of these cities' agricultural hinterland, apportioning these fields out to their various officials and employees and organizing teams of conscripts to work on them. In other words, over the course of the 4th millennium BCE, These temple households would administer broad swaths of the Mesopotamian economy, including, as we'll see, not only the southern Alluvial Plain, but also much of the nearby highlands. So the point of this episode is to ask, why here and why now? What aspects of Mesopotamian society up to this point enabled this transformation? For over a century, academics have struggled to characterize the thing that comes into being during this period and which continues during the present. The most neutral modern word is complexity, referring to a society with many different complementary divisions of labor and a centralized hierarchical power structure. In a 2004 article, Mitchell Rothman defined the development of complexity as, quote, a process during which a social transformation occurs to a qualitatively and quantitatively different kind of economic, governmental, and religious interdependence among people living in close contact in a multi-site society, end quote. He quotes a 1998 article by Gilstein, who describes the idea of a complex society as, quote, a deliberately broad concept meant to subsume empires, states, and those early forms of hierarchically organized polities that are generally called chiefdoms, end quote. In other words, These late Ubaid towns of a thousand or so aren't cities or states or empires yet, but they do contain that germ of so-called complexity. We already see power centralized in these temple households, which are already feeding large numbers of people and hosting infrastructure for artisans like potters and stonecutters. As you might have guessed, this world historic transformation during the Uruk period is largely centered on the city of Uruk in the southern delta, about 65 kilometers upriver from Ur. The site is known by its modern Arabic name of Warka, directly derived from the Babylonian name Uruk, which might also be the source of the modern name Iraq. But the Sumerians knew the city as Unug, a word that could either mean fortress or jewelry or adornment, apparently pronounced the same as, or similarly to, the word for a temple or a sanctuary. So I'll call the city Unug, since we'll be spending most of season two in the Uruk period. Besides its patron goddess Inanna, the city is perhaps most famous for its legendary king Gilgamesh, best known as the protagonist of a Babylonian language epic from the late second millennium BCE. However, in Sumerian epic poetry, His title was En-Kulaba, or Lord of the Kulaba, one of the two temple complexes around which the city grew up. In fact, we probably can't speak of a single city until its inhabitants build a wall around the entire settlement in the early 3rd millennium BCE. The city of Unug began life as two Ubaid villages about 300 meters apart from each other, or a five-minute walk if you're taking your time. Both were founded on a bird's foot delta, which is formed when a raised levee runs into slower water and splits off to flow down to ground level in a branching pattern that looks like a bird's foot. In their case, this raised levee sat above the seasonal wetlands at plain level, ensuring that their reed huts would stay dry even at the height of the spring flood season. Situated where the river flowed down into the plain, these two villages could easily divert the river into their own nearby irrigation networks to water land on or near the levee slopes. More generally, Unug sits near a massive natural basin, which ensured bountiful wetland foraging for its earliest inhabitants and those of nearby Tel El Aweli, and later on, a massive amount of irrigable farmland. These two villages were established during the Ubaid IV period, around 4500 BCE, that dividing line I talked about earlier. This earliest level included a ditch three meters deep, likely to control the flow of water downhill from the levee to the plain. Other troughs, lined with bricks or plastered with clay, contain the burnt remains of various offerings, including birds and fish. These were apparently used over a long period of time, with earlier remains brushed aside to make room for new deposits. There isn't much to say about the Kulaba, the temple complex I mentioned earlier. It was founded late in the Ubaid period, closer to 4200 BCE, as a small shrine on top of a mound of rammed earth, a primitive version of the later Sumerian temples on monumental temple platforms built of unbaked bricks. This temple complex was dedicated to the heaven god An, or Anu, for most of Mesopotamian history, but most scholars believe that it may have been dedicated to a different male god during the 4th millennium BCE, if not an earlier version of Inanna's husband, Dumuzi, then maybe Enki, or Enlil, or even a male version of Inanna the archaeological chronology of prehistoric Unug is primarily based on the series of temples continuously rebuilt in the other temple complex. This one is commonly called by its name from the end of the 3rd millennium BCE onwards, a which is Sumerian for House of Heaven, or House of On, the Heaven God. However, the earliest texts refer to it simply as Unug, indicating that this name may have originally applied only to the temple complex, and only later to the entire city. As far back as we have evidence, this temple was dedicated to Inanna, goddess of sex and war. There's no way to know which god the earliest shrine here was dedicated to. Level 18 of the Aana, the small shrine of the earliest village here, dates to the late Ubeid period. Levels 15 through 6 represent the early and middle Uruk periods. The first surviving monumental construction appears in level 6. Pictographic cuneiform writing is invented in level 4 and revised in level 3, right around 3000 BCE. And that's where season 2 will finish up. Anyway, in level 17 of the Aeana, still safely in the Ubeid period, we have an advancement in record-keeping technology that will make much more sense when we get to that invention of writing. I've talked about clay tokens at several sites recently. These are simple geometric shapes made of unbaked clay, balls, discs, cones, cylinders, and so on. These were likely exchanged as stand-ins for animals and amounts of grain as part of the administrative systems of early temples and other public buildings responsible for communal grain storage. What's new in level 17 at Unug, along with unremarkable spheres and a disc, is a cylindrical token with lines incised into the clay, making it the earliest known complex tokens. It is a token with additional markings. In her 1992 book, Denise Schmant-Bessera argued that cylindrical tokens represent livestock animals. If this was true in the Ubaid period, the markings may have denoted the age, sex, or species of the animal. Additionally, this cylinder and one of these spheres are perforated. This may be another complex marker, but it was more likely used to tie several tokens together on a single string to store them as part of a single transaction or as a record of a single outstanding debt. So we spend the rest of the episode on complexity during the Ubaid period, especially focusing on these temples or institutional households. In tracking the history of these institutional temple households, it's important to emphasize that these earliest Ubaid villages were founded in year-round wetlands, which provided fish, waterfowl, and other aquatic animals for these early foragers. Their earliest farming practices were probably extensive rather than intensive. In other words, rather than a complex canal system meant to maximize the amount of grain grown per hectare of farmland, they probably opted to travel farther for lower-effort farming. They would plant grain on the banks of lakes, rivers, and swamps as the seasonal floodwaters receded in the rich, wet soil deposited by these floods, traveling along these bodies of water by boat to exploit as much as possible of these banks. This grain, combined with fishing and hunting in the wetlands, would have ensured a reliable food surplus for these earliest communities, allowing their population to grow over time. In the short term, more people to help with the harvest would mean more food for everyone. Eventually, however, these settlements would grow too large to feed with this kind of extensive, decentralized grain farming. They would have had to travel too far to find easy soil along receding bodies of water. Also, especially during the late Ubaid, climate was beginning to dry up, shrinking the wetlands, and making dry farming impossible. Both of these changes required these Ubaid farmers to find a way to plant more grain on a smaller area of land, as overall conditions for this kind of extensive grain farming were getting worse. They had already been experimenting with irrigation, controlling the flow of water down the slopes of the raised levee, draining some wetlands, creating others, and so on. Now, however, they needed a more intensive canal system to grow more grain, especially in the flat basins, which used to be year-round wetlands until recently. The more the climate dries out, the more former wetland area will be opened up for irrigation. This, combined with a population explosion resulting from this intensive farming, will drastically transform Mesopotamian society. Our earliest evidence of irrigation comes from the mid-5000s BCE at the latest, or the Ubaid I period, a little later than the earliest public buildings in the south. In addition to watering fields near the river, irrigation allowed these early farmers to drain wetlands or dig transportation canals to other branches of the river. After all, a wetland results from a lot of water flowing downhill into an area of lower ground than the surroundings. If you turn this into farmland, you'll be able to control the flow of that water across this area, damming up the river here, draining a basin for farming here, and so on. Also, wetlands are ideal for foragers and small-scale farmers, but as soon as you start depending on large grain fields and herds of livestock all in the same place, you start to worry about wild animals eating your grain, digging into fields, or attacking your herds. On the other hand, irrigation would have given them the power to create artificial wetlands, for hunting and fishing, to store water seasonally, or merely to drain excess water ahead of a specific section of the canal network, whichever was most convenient to them. Almost certainly, these earliest canals on the southern delta were small-scale projects, organized by small villages with no need for an institutional administration. Everyone understood how the entire community could benefit, so there was no need for coercion. They probably started by planting grain on the sloping walls of the levee, near their turtleback settlements and closest as possible to the river. As they needed new land, they would probably continue to plant on the levee slopes, given how easy it would be to direct the water to flow slightly downhill. These fields on the levee walls, rather than on the plain below, would also escape seasonal flooding, allowing farmers to control exactly how much water their land received. So, I've talked before about the kind of positive feedback loop connecting more grain production with a growing population. More kids means more help on the farm, which means more grain, which can feed more kids, and so on. In other words, periodic famines were one of the major limiting factors of population growth in the pre-modern world, along with disease and death and childbirth. By increasing grain yields with irrigation, and by storing a larger amount of grain over a longer period of time, these Ube towns found a way around this fundamental feature of mortal life. This, combined with the increasing transformation of white lands into farmland, resulted in an increasingly large labor force capable of clearing, irrigating, and cultivating ever more land. We see the results of this population growth already by the end of the Ubaid, when towns like Eridu are home to at least a thousand people. Larger, denser communities organized around a central, redistributive temple can support a more complex economy, allowing artisans to specialize in their craft full time. Also, like I mentioned, these temples increasingly include installations for craft production, pottery, weaving, pressing oil, dyeing fabric, working seven precious stones, and so on. Especially as we move into the 4th millennium BCE, these temple households will play a central role in organizing urban labor at every level. The temple could also play an important social role, especially in communities whose population had begun as a cluster of households bound together by thousands of years of fishing in the same swamp, but which had eventually grown to settlements of several thousand people and meshed in networks of mutual obligations with thousands more. It's literally impossible to maintain the same kinds of face-to-face interactions that sustained a small village and a town as big as Eridu, let alone in the massive cities of the mid-3000s BCE. We talked about migration ad nauseum in the northern Ubaid episode, and there's no need to rehash all that here, but it's fair to say that many of these towns were growing faster than would be likely without a fair amount of immigration from elsewhere. We can't know exactly where and when these migrants moved into the delta, but the disappearance of settlements from nearby areas, like the Gulf in the mid-4000s BCE, right when these Ubaid towns were growing, are always potential candidates. However, we can be fairly certain that if people were migrating to these towns from elsewhere, they were bringing their own cultural traditions with them including not only different languages, but also different means of legitimating social authority. As we see from changing religious artifacts and architecture, and as we'll see from later periods, these temples were in a constant state of adaptation to changing political circumstances, population shifts, relationships with other temples and religious traditions, and so on. This flexibility would have allowed them to incorporate new kinds of social legitimacy from new migrant groups, likely along with generous gifts to keep their heads of families loyal. In other words, just like with labor projects, The process of scaling up social cohesion creates not only a bigger social role for the temple household, but also more people invested in that temple's continued success. So if you're listening to this in the future, this episode will be preceded by a summary of the first 14 episodes, focusing on the history of the household. For now, suffice it to say, during the earlier pre-Pottery Neolithic, people appear to have lived in small nuclear households in small villages, and consider their fellow villagers as kin, regardless of their actual blood relationship— as far as we could tell, very little was quote-unquote owned on the level of the individual household rather than the village or kin group as a whole. The several cultures of the pottery Neolithic, including Ubaid culture, all appear to be centered around an extended family household structure, larger than these earlier nuclear units but smaller than earlier villages. Sometimes we find what appears to be one or two of these houses by themselves, presumably with several generations of the same family working the land. But as we'll see, these families which owned land in common were also the fundamental unit of the later Sumerian economy. The Ubaid incarnation of these extended family homes is associated with a particular architectural style, which appears to have originated in the Hamrin area, intersecting with the upper Diyala River in east-central Mesopotamia. This quote-unquote tripartite style, named after its main hall and two sets of symmetrical side rooms, spread downriver from the Diyala to the southern Mesopotamia delta. By the 5000s BCE, it had become the standard design for an Ubaid extended family household. Then, as we've talked about, it spread across the region as the Ubaid style of monumental public building. This association of religious ritual with these Ubeid temples indicates that at least some social practices accompanied this new style of building, and the fact that it originated as a style of extended family home suggests that these religious practices were probably deeply rooted in their concept of home and family. We can't be sure whether these temples were associated with a particular chiefly family, or whether they were already conceived of as the household of a god. Either way, these new households take up the task of daily production that used to happen at the domestic level firing pottery, brewing beer, roasting barley grains for long-term storage, and eventually processing textiles, all at a much larger scale than any individual domestic household. So this is the crucial moment when production and consumption drift apart. Before now, households appear to have grown their own food and made most of their own tools for their own use. Even with a public storehouse keeping grain from several different households, the use of stamp seals and tokens indicates that different households may have stored their own individual hordes of grain in these public storehouses. In other words, we have no evidence that these early public buildings were supporting any kind of full-time workers until the mid-4000s BCE, rather than merely stabilizing long-term production at the household level by storing each household's overflow, and possibly a collective store in case of famine. From now on, the temples will control enough land and accumulate enough grain on a regular basis to reward various classes of dependents. Large estates for top officials, small estates and rations for artisans, and only rations for manual workers. These officials and artisans on the top Will work full-time in non-agricultural jobs and end up with more grain than the manual farm workers and rural farming households who actually grew the grain. And as we'll see, the status disparity appears to take several millennia to crystallize in the form known from Sumerian cities in the 2000s BCE. Remember, there were about 2,000 years between the end of the northern Ubaid, around 4500 BCE, and the first historically useful texts, around 2700 BCE. These two millennia saw not only a gradual trend of aridification, putting a permanent end to any hopes of rain-fed fields in the south, but also at least two major dry spells, one around 3,700 BCE, and another between about 3,300 and 3,100. Just as the desertification of the Gulf may have forced some Arabian herders into Ubaid towns, the growth of northern Ubaid towns may include a steady stream of immigration from smaller, more mobile Halaf groups. To understand why these different groups may have thrown their lot with these larger farming settlements, we should back up a bit. All urban, literate state societies known to world history have had an agricultural economy based on the cultivation of one or two staple crops— In western Eurasia, obviously, we're most familiar with wheat and barley, the Americas have maize, East Asia has rice, and so on. This is far from the only way to subsist, of course, but regardless of which area or period of pre-modern history we're looking at, we tend to see the de facto authority of the state reach only as far as its farmland. Nearby mountains, grasslands, and deserts can't support the same large urban settlements, so they're much more labor-intensive for these agricultural cities to control from afar. As we'll see, this kind of long-distance political projection tends to be more or less transitory, shifting with the fortunes of particular kings. So why these particular plants? The standard answer goes like this. Dried grains of wheat or barley have a long shelf life, especially if they're stored roasted or still in their seed coat. This allows people to accumulate a large amount over time, which would be impossible for more perishable goods. Also, these grains are physically small, meaning that even a small amount could be subdivided between any number of different people. In other words, a liter of barley grains is easier to share with a large group than three potatoes especially if that group is not divisible by three. Third, the fact that these plants grow above ground means that a governing authority can easily check the progress of the harvest, rather than, for example, having to dig potatoes out of the ground to see. Even so, all of this is true for many plants besides wheat and barley. They're not the most nutritious candidate to become a staple crop, or the most calorically dense, or the most efficient in terms of land use or labor. For example, lentils were domesticated right alongside these cereals. Lentils are also easy to gather, with a long shelf life and dry storage and their fairly small grains make these stores possible to subdivide any number of ways. Furthermore, lentils are more nutritious and more calorically dense. So why didn't any of these complex societies base their economies on lentils, or chickpeas, or horse beans, or any number of other crops? The answer may be this. The wild ancestors of cereals aren't all annual, but part of the domestication process was aligning large grain harvests with the Mediterranean wet season in winter, which brought wheat and barley into the world as annual domestics. If Ubaid farmers planted barley along shorelines. This would also result in an annual crop planted in late spring rather than in autumn, but otherwise it's still an annual crop. Lentils, on the other hand, grow continuously throughout the year, allowing farmers to eat from the same plants continuously, which is harder for a small cadre of surveyors to eyeball across an entire region than the presence or absence of grain. In other words, as James Scott argued, cereals like barley became the staple crops around which urban societies were organized, not because the plant itself provided any superlative benefit to people eating it, but because its production was easiest for those new institutional households to administer. That is to say, intensive grain agriculture and social complexity grew up together as two halves of the same historical process. Like I said, this abundant wetland habitat of the southern delta allowed for denser concentrations than elsewhere in the 6000s BCE, but by the late 4000s and especially by the 3000s BCE, not only were these wetlands shrinking, but the urban populations they used to support had exploded in size, surpassing the carrying capacity of the wetlands as such. Fish, unlike grain, are harder to process and store in bulk, with a much higher risk of going bad in the process. Shrinking wetlands opened up new land for irrigation farming, which enabled population growth, which produced a workforce large enough to drain more wetlands or extend the canal network, which grew more food and enabled more population growth, and so on. As we've talked about, more and more of this process was organized by these institutional temple households, which were not only managing their own projects like farm labor, infrastructure projects, pottery workshops, industrial-scale ovens, and so on, but also managing the collective surplus of a large and dense community. So we've talked a lot about the factories fueling population growth, no need to rehash that all here. So I it say, a large temple storehouse can feed many hungry migrants in the short term in exchange for their work with the coming harvest. This creates more food, which feeds more workers, and so on. Given enough human labor, irrigation farming can scale up more or less indefinitely until it runs out of space. And in this extremely wide, flat delta plane, there were no physical barriers preventing these towns from growing to tens of thousands besides the amount of dirt and water they would have to move around in the process. In other words, intensive agriculture scales up much more than reliance on natural stands of fish and waterfowl hence their decreasing reliance on fishing relative to farming over time. At the same time, the opportunity to catch fish without relying on the weather would have likely sustained these communities through bad harvests, unlike in the dry farming north with less access to aquatic environments. Like I said, these towns almost certainly comprise people from many different backgrounds, cultural traditions, and likely languages. In fact, the very act of consolidating the entire community's surplus under one roof may have bound the community together as much as whatever ideological or religious adaptations the temples made to their towns' changing demographics, in other words, even if they didn't trust each other, they all had no choice but to trust a temple that had already taken their grain. After all, the same household was already organizing skilled production and likely facilitating long-distance trade, not to mention whatever religious purpose it served. Speaking of which, ritual had been a central feature of public buildings since the beginning of the Neolithic. We've talked about Grebekli Tepe, there's also evidence for human sacrifice at nearby sites like Chagrinu around the same time. Ubeid public buildings at sites like Everdu and Tel Abada also contained unique evidence of religious ritual not found in nearby domestic contexts. In anthropological terms, a religion is an ideology or a pattern of beliefs and values that reflects and reifies existing social structures. One of the functions of those values is to consolidate different kinds of legitimacy and authority in the same institution, that is primarily in the temple household. So a temple could rule with an iron fist, extracting tribute from the population at the tip of a spear, but these projects are always easier to organize when people think that they stand to benefit from buying in, and it's harder to tell someone to shut up and submit or starve than it is to describe that the harvest would fail without sufficient offerings and that by offering part of their yield, farmers were not only landing temple storehouses in the human world, but also placating the god responsible for the whole natural process in question in the world of the gods. Religious knowledge can't be verified or disproven. In other words, from the beginning of history, Mesopotamians lived in a world of greater and lesser gods, demons, and personal gods. The temple wouldn't have needed to convince its faithful of the existence of gods at all. Instead, it just had to convince people that the continued success of irrigation farming resulted from the offerings they had already rendered unto the temple as the work that they had already done may have convinced them that that work was worth it. Another feature of religious ideology, in addition to reifying the role of the temple in society, is creating and reinforcing a shared sense of identity. Of course, we can only see the traces of these identities left in the archaeological record. We talked about jewelry and personal decoration in episodes 13 and 14, not to mention temples. However, shared burial practices can also bind a community together. Earlier in season one, we talked about secondary burial rites at Domu Steppe consolidating ancestors from several lineages with a single ceremony to bind the community together. During this period, we see people buried with the same basic sets of pottery at Eridu, Ur, and a little bit later at Susa. The stability introduced by the central administrative apparatus allowed particular communities to survive for millennia. Many of the most prominent Sumerian cities during the 2000s BCE were occupied at least as early as the 4000s BCE, if not earlier. Of course, if religion is the carrot that rewards compliance, war is the stick that compels it. Mesopotamian art depicts battle scenes from the mid-3000s BCE onwards. By the time we have relevant texts during the 2500s BCE or so, the free population of the city-state appears to have been subject to conscription into either public works projects or military service, depending on which was more urgent. The administrative language used for farm workers and foot soldiers was identical, and the draft appears to have drawn from the same class of free commoners. Military service likely looked very different in the 4000s BCE, but we can't tell for certain. We talked about clay slingshots farther back in Season 1. Pottery workshops would be a more reliable source of projectiles than trying to find rocks on the ground, and these clay projectiles would always be a similar size, shape, and density, made out of an easily attainable natural resource. This was especially so in the southern delta, with no native sources of stone. However, all of the definite numbers I could find were from northern or central Mesopotamia, 136 projectiles from Tel Abada, 1,090 from Tel Zedan in Syria, and about 4,000 from a tripartite building at Tel Madur, on the upper Diyala River, just upriver from Tel Abada. At the same time, Traditional stone points for spears and arrows become less common, possibly because each projectile would have taken longer to make than a mass-produced clay bullet. In other words, weapons are being subjected to the same historical forces as cereal farming, sheep herding, or pottery production. They're all economies of scale. Anyway, that is that on the evidence of Ubaid, temple households from Neolithic public buildings. For the rest of the episode, we're going to look at these temples in their own right. So, what is a temple? In a 2009 article, Mitchell Rothman defines the standard design of a monumental public building from the late 4000s and early 3000s BCE in Mesopotamia, It has a tripartite plan, accessible from a nearby courtyard or assembly area. The central hall has a sacrificial platform. The walls are plastered, painted red or white, sometimes decorated with murals. And the walls behind an altar or opposite the door are decorated with ornamental niches. A nearby room often has a basin sunk into the floor, apparently for some kind of ritual pouring ceremony or libation. Unlike domestic houses, we shouldn't expect to find any material from daily craft production inside this central hall or sanctuary. In other words, this appears to be the room where the actual worship happened. The temple's various side rooms and satellite buildings, however, often contain installations for making pottery or textiles, sometimes including more drainage infrastructure. All these rules apply more to southern Ubaid temples, and notably the temple at Brak in Syria, which we'll visit soon, more so the northern sites like Tepe Gawra. However, the southern style will have a second stab at influencing the north during the later Uruk period. In a 1990 article, Shamil Kuba analyzes the evidence for a standardized unit of measurement used to build these monumental temples during the Ubaid period. In other words, architects at sites like Eridu appear to have laid out their buildings using multiples of a so-called Ubaid cubit of about 72 centimeters, notably longer than the Egyptian cubit of around 52 centimeters. There are several benefits to using standard sizes and measures like this. If the architect knows the size of the brick molds, they can design the entire buildings before the bricks are even made. This allows different steps of the process, designing carpentry, mason, mixing bitumen, and so on, to happen in separate places, coordinated by higher-level administrative bureaucracy. For example, at the Samara site of Tel Es Sawan, we see a uniform design of houses skillfully made from stone blocks, which might suggest that stonemasons are to begin to specialize. In other words, just like farming, herding, pottery, weapons, and so on, architecture is also an economy of scale. The temple from level 9 at Eridu is the earliest known structure to use as unit, in the early to mid-4000s BCE. The entire building is 15.12 by 10.08 meters. That is a perfect 3 to 2 ratio. In Ubeid cubits, however, that makes the entire building 21 by 14 cubits, which may already reflect the importance of the number 7, In the numerology of later mythology, there are seven Anunnaki gods, three periods of seven days in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and so on. The central chamber, or sanctuary, measured 10 by 4.1 meters, and the area from the center line of the inner southwest wall to the outer northeast wall, measured 18 by 6 cubits, or a ratio of 3 to 1. We see similar ratios in the sanctuaries of later tripartite temples, often centered on the number 3. We'll look at a mathematical reason for this, but there may have also been a reason rooted in the Sumerian language. By the 2000s BCE, The word esh in Sumerian could refer to either a temple sanctuary or the number three. By level seven, temple architects at Eridu had rebuilt the sanctuary as two adjacent squares of seven by seven cubits. Also, a line drawn along the center of the sanctuary walls connecting both ends of the temple would create a rectangle 24 by eight cubits, another three to one ratio concerning the sanctuary, divided into three equal squares by the inner walls. The temple from level six, the last level of the Ubaid period during the late 4000 BCE at Eridu, had a sanctuary exactly 20 cubits long and almost exactly 5 cubits wide. That is, four adjacent squares, each of 5 by 5 cubits. Kuba points out that the temple from Eridu Level 6 shows evidence that these architects had already discovered the Pythagorean theorem by the 4000s BCE, or at least the fact that triangles with certain side lengths will always produce a right angle. Specifically, they might have gotten a rope at least 30 cubits long and tied knots 5, 12, and 13 cubits apart from each other. By pulling these knots as far apart from each other as possible, you could trace out a triangle with side lengths of 5, 12, and 13 cubits. They would always lay out a perfect right triangle on the ground. Kuba finds that a longer unit of 1.5 cubits, or 108 centimeters, was multiplied by 5, 12, and 13 to create a perfectly rectangular building with perfect right angles that was 33 cubits long, or about 24 meters. Anyway, returning to domestic houses for a bit, most tripartite houses during the Ubaid were about the same size there's no sign that multiple lineages within a settlement regularly competed by building larger private houses. As I've suggested, with burials, there may have been social taboos against this kind of ostentatious display to maintain a veneer of social equality. However, as early as the Samara culture, during the early pottery Neolithic, people start to decorate the outside walls of certain buildings with buttresses and recesses, starting with utilitarian domestic houses and sheds with no particular significance. A buttress is a vertical exterior support to secure a wall with a wider base. Imagine a square pillar with one face fully attached to the wall, and the recess is the empty space between these buttresses. Hence, walls decorated with alternating or nesting buttresses and recesses appear as early as the six thousand BCE on buildings of every description. Over time, however, these decorations start to distinguish public buildings from the domestic buildings surrounding them. For example, during the first five Ubaid levels at Tepe Gaura, fewer and fewer domestic houses have buttress recess walls. By level two at Tel Abada, around five thousand BCE, the large central building I mentioned, that's building A, was the only building there with buttress recess outer walls. Increasingly, central administrative buildings marked with these decorations are also built on raised platforms, as at Eridu and Susa, so they can rise above nearby houses to be visible from far away. Early versions of the temple at the Kolaba Temple Complex in Unug have both double and triple recesses. The temple at Eridu had only single recesses, but the building itself was much larger and more labor-intensive, which must have lent it a monumental aspect on its own. Around the same time, to quote Uwe Sivertsen, late Ubeidgara has, quote, almost perfectly harmonized, doubly recessed wall ornaments, giving the individual edifices, their interiors, and the central open space an air of special significance, End quote. So, as we've been talking about, the daily business of these large administrative temple households revolved around the collection, storage, and distribution of large amounts of agricultural products, especially processed grain. The fact that wheat and barley grow above ground on a predictable annual schedule that the grains have a long shelf life, and they're small enough to be subdivided any number of ways, all enabled these bureaucracies to administer an economy based on intensive grain agriculture. By the late 4000s, record-keeping systems like tokens and stamp seals were both over two millennia old, used in similar contexts. People from different lineages and households, and luckily from different cultural groups, were all storing their grain in public storehouses, and they needed a way to mark their property apart from everyone else's. This had been the case for the entire pottery Neolithic, from Sabi Abyad in Syria to Chogamish in Iran. Also, as we've been talking about, these public administrative authorities are also beginning to collect grain from the public for their own use. As you can imagine, this likely increased demands for accountability to ensure people that the tribute they offered to the temple wasn't going to waste. I already talked about tokens, or small, simple shapes made of unbaked clay, balls, discs, cylinders, cones, and so on, probably exchanged as stand-ins for agricultural products, especially different amounts of grain. Besides the complex token I mentioned at Unug, we don't see any particular advancements in token technology during the Ubaid period. They're apparently used in similar administrative contexts to stamp seals. Speaking of which, stamp seals were apparently originally used by individual households to mark their property in communal storage areas during the 6000s BCE. This functioned as a form of leaderless documentation, as long as everyone recognized everyone's stamp, or at the very least agreed not to mess with goods sealed with unfamiliar stamps, there was no need for a central authority, and possibly no central store of grain available for an authority to pay out of. During the Ubaid period, however, stamp seals were increasingly used by administrative temple households, with most seals and seal impressions appearing nearby. If people were still storing their own grain as such in public storage, they began to do so alongside administrative officials, sealing certain containers and doors with their own seals. Rather than marking them as their own property, these temple officials were marking them as having been processed by their own department of this bureaucracy. From this point on, these goods would be sealed by dried clay with the image of that official stamp seal in it. If anyone tried to access them without their own official seal, they would leave either a broken seal or fresh clay with no official seal impression, which would both be evidence of tampering. In other words, if the pottery Neolithic instituted a distinction between communally owned property and the property of a specific household. The Ubed appears to have invented a distinction between the property of a domestic household and that belonged to the administrative bureaucracy of a temple household. Now, instead of representing a particular household, an official's seal represented their function within that temple administration, assessing intake, accounting for daily and weekly expenditures, and so on. These officials likely use tokens or some other means to keep larger scale records of these goods. We can't be sure exactly how until they start writing down texts. Seals found at these temple complexes depict religious scenes, including the temples themselves and what appear to be rituals involving several people, hunting scenes, and domestic herds. It's unclear whether the imagery on an official seal related to that official's role within the temple. Depictions of manual labor are rare, unlike during the later Uruk period. The one exception is at Susa, which we'll talk about in a future episode. So, like I mentioned, these temples were larger, more monumental versions of the same tripartite design that southerners used for domestic houses. They were decorated with an ornamentation that originated on domestic houses, but which eventually came to distinguish these particular temple households. So it's worth asking, were these buildings the actual households of particular chiefs? In other words, in addition to these buildings' religious and administrative functions, did each one have a ruling family that called it home? The answer may vary. Some may have been chiefs' households, while others may have been public buildings unattached to a particular family. But it's worth noting, throughout Mesopotamian history, the difference between temples, palaces, and the households of particularly wealthy secular elites is often one of degree rather than type. Temple complexes have a temple sanctuary, of course, but they also have offices and storage buildings and craft production facilities, all staffed by teams of employees, as teams of manual workers work the institutional farmland outside. In other words, as soon as we can assess the situation clearly, temple households and royal palaces are organized along similar lines, with similar bureaucracies and hierarchies of skilled and unskilled workers, each with a ruling family on top. It just so happens that, in palaces and other elite households, the family is a living mortal one. Rather than a couple of gods represented by statues in the temple sanctuary. In other words, by the 2000s BCE, both temples and palaces are scaled up versions of the same kind of administrative households that we've been talking about today, which themselves grew out of the Ubaid domestic house for an extended family. As these communities grew, they adapted pre existing social conventions to accommodate larger and more diverse groups of people living side by side. Abu Jassim, who excavated Tel Abada, describes Ubaid communities as quote, largely secular, small scale polities ruled by the heads of economically dominant kin groups, end quote. In other words, that they were governed by larger versions of the same family structures that had governed village life for millennia. This is fairly straightforward for small rural settlements, which already tended to be dominated by a particular lineage. But in towns like Eridu, with over a thousand people, lineage would be harder to trace for the entire community. If the majority of people were related, their common ancestor would have lived many generations prior, and if they weren't related, they might have constructed a legendary or mythological common ancestor. Just as small, egalitarian societies often use the logic of kinship even if the entire village isn't related by blood, larger societies organized by kinship often find ways to incorporate outsiders into the internal logic of their own kinship system. Like I mentioned, even egalitarian societies have status divisions by age, prioritizing elders over their descendants. Even a relatively equal society, like that of the pottery, Neolithic, may have had similar distinctions, recognizing elder generations as the senior members of society, and creating an unequal relationship between two related households. This may have been the basis for imagining the relationship between domestic houses and these new temple households. In other words, the god or chief of the temple may have been imagined as the parent or grandparent of the entire community in some sense, which would explain why everyone else owed that particular household some kind of deference. Again, these households don't need to be genetically related or even to share the same kind of cultural background in order to agree that they're related in some kind of spiritual or legendary way. The anthropological term is fictive kinship found in societies of every size and description. So let's imagine a hypothetical scenario There's a village with only one house in it, we call that House House A, founded by an ancestor named Old Grandpa. It's done well for itself, grown lots of food, and fed a growing generation of children into adulthood. But eventually, the different generations get into a fight. The now middle-aged grandparents of adult children don't think they have enough say in a household run by Old Grandpa. So one of them decides they'd rather reign over House B than serve in House A. So they build the second house nearby, in the same village, but still promise to celebrate all the major holidays in Old Grandpa's house next door. That is to consolidate religious ritual in one particular household, even as they do all their regular domestic stuff in different households. Another generation goes by. Both households continue to grow, and now one of the kids in House B has grown up and gotten married, and they want to start their own household. So the town builds a new building, House C, still with the implicit agreement to do all the important stuff at House A. They might even choose to decorate House A with architectural ornaments, like buttresses and recesses, even if it's otherwise identical in plan and size to Houses B and C. So out a bit, a band of fisher herders from the Gulf, driven away from their homeland by drying pastures, asked to set up a household nearby. And the other households agree to let them do so, on the condition that they integrate into their existing cultural practices, which are still centered on religious rituals conducted at Old Grandpa's House A. Like I said, they may even agree to pretend that the new immigrants are descended from Old Grandpa himself, who is now long dead and unable to disagree. That is to treat them not just as guests, but as long-lost kin reclaiming their ancestral home. As people build new households, new generations getting married and starting new families, new immigrants bringing their existing families, and so on. This might provide a template for integrating them into the existing social order. All of us, long-time residents and immigrants, celebrate all our major holidays at House A, and we're all grateful to Old Grandpa for founding our community. Over time, the figure of Old Grandpa may become a kind of mythic ancestor and maybe even eventually a god, the patriarch of thousands of unrelated lineages all gathered around the same temple complex in the same growing city. The hypothetical scenario I just described doesn't depend on any kind of economic disparity between different households, only the evolution of different social practices. However, as we talked about a lot in the Northern Ubaid episode, this may have been the period when these disparities first arose in society, especially if they had access to plows. Burial evidence provides no evidence of major inequality in burial goods, but this may reflect modest burial practices rather than egalitarian relations between living people. So to summarize the argument from the Northern Ubaid episode... Plows allow people to cultivate much more farmland than otherwise, but in order to do so, cattle need to be fed grain instead of grass. Since this is an expensive drain on edible resources, which many houses can't afford, plow cattle tend to be owned by wealthier households. As observed in rural modern societies, these wealthy households often plow other people's fields in exchange for a portion of their grain or their help with the upcoming harvest. In other words, they're able to parlay their ownership of livestock into passive income from the rest of the community, part of which goes to maintain their wealth by feeding their cattle more grain. Large grain stores are synonymous with power in a non-monetary economy. They allow their owners to pay workers of any description and to host large feasts. Like I've said, these feasts are perfect venues to exchange gifts and to build alliances between villages and elite households. Grain can also pay cooks to prepare these feasts, artisans to make these gifts, daily rations to the workers in the fields growing the next harvest, and so on. So at one end of the spectrum of possibilities in our little hypothetical town, old grandpa passed on his title to the next generation, and a new old grandpa inherits the title every few decades. Because the current old grandpa and his family preside over the temple rituals, they're entitled to oversee the collection of grain from the rest of the community, who owe him a debt of gratitude for ensuring the harvest with those rituals. The current old grandpa would use that grain to pay workers to grow more grain, spin wool into thread, dig clay and make pottery, and so on. At the festivals held at his House A, the regnant old grandpa would serve out some of that grain and reward his guests and most loyal followers with gifts made by his employees or given to him by allied chiefs. Members of his family would marry into other chiefs' families and vice versa, These weddings would likely include large-scale exchanges of livestock, jewelry, and other home goods necessary to start a household from scratch. Every now and then, an old grandpa would decide that he needed a new, bigger house, A, and all the people who had benefited from his harvest rituals and attended his feasts would be obligated to build them a nicer monumental building to live in. In this scenario, Mesopotamian kingship grew out of prehistoric chiefdoms, which themselves grew out of relations between different households within the same family. It would explain how society came to be ruled by dynastic kings, who derive their legitimacy partially from their participation in the rituals of the city's patron god and their identification with that god. But aside from the buildings themselves and some interpretations of stone maesads, there's not much evidence for this kind of leadership by one person. Of course, that's one end of the spectrum of possibilities. At the other end, as I've mentioned, is a public shrine, serving the entire community equally without favoring or being run by any particular family. After all, religious objects like figurines date back to a period of the Neolithic before family divisions were likely to exist within the village, when religious leaders were probably chosen on some other basis. Most likely, if the temple wasn't considered to belong to any particular living family, it was modeled on a household because it was considered to be the household of a god, that is, of a social construct rather than a living person. In this scenario, over time, old grandpa would be remembered as an increasingly abstract concept, less a human man than the legendary ancestor of the entire community. People might combine stories about him with stories of other gods or folk heroes, including those brought by successive generations of migrants. Eventually, House A would cease to be used as a domestic house, and it would be rebuilt as a monumental temple complex, including a temple sanctuary centered on a statue of Old Grandpa, as well as a number of storage rooms, craft areas, and so on. A few times a year, every household and workshop in town would offer up a certain percentage of their produce for a religious festival to Old Grandpa, and House A would store most of it but prepare some of this produce for a celebratory feast. The rest would be used to pay farm workers, artisans, and the priests who conducted regular prayers and offerings to the statue of Old Grandpa in the sanctuary. In return, a grateful old grandpa would ensure optimal weather through the following year. Either way, I think we're looking at two sides of the same phenomenon. An institutional household is exerting control over the flow of the community's surplus, manifesting in both new types of buildings and new political means of compelling labor. In both cases, public life is increasingly centered on these temples, which administer larger and larger amounts of goods with increasingly complex record-keeping techniques. And that is it for Season 1. Join us next season to watch a few of these towns grow into sprawling cities. First, Telbrok in Syria, with around twenty thousand people in the early three thousands, and then Unug in the south, with many times that many by the end of the millennium. So, moving back to the Iliad, <laughs> okay. Thersites is a common soldier. He is criticizing the kings and the lords who led the Greek armies to Troy. So he needs to be put in his place, which is a job for a guy with a stick.
2: Hey, don't you guys think that it's kind of rude of this guy to come to be beating us with a stick? Oh, don't make me get myself self for beating stick!
1: <laughs> Odysseus at once went up to him and rebuked him sternly. Trick
3: your glib tongue, Theracites, said he, and babble not a word farther. Try not with princes when you have none to back you. There's no viler creature come before Troy with the sons of Atreus. Drop this chatter about kings, and neither revile them nor keep harping about homecoming. How dare you gibe at Agamemnon, because the Danaans have awarded them so many prizes? I tell you, therefore, and it shall surely be, that if I again catch you talking such nonsense, I will take you, strip away from you all respect, and whip you out of the assembly till so you go blubbering back to the ships.
1: On this, Odysseus beat him with the staff about the back and shoulders till Thersites dropped and fell a-weeping. The golden scepter raised a bloody welt on his back, so he sat down, frightened and in pain, looking foolish as he wiped the tears from his eyes.
2: Oh god, this is written for rich
1: people. Oh yeah. So Odysseus doesn't actually address Thercides' point, he just tells him to shut up eight different times, calls him ugly, and then hits him with a stick.
2: Truly, he is a leader.
1: <laughs> exactly. On the other hand, every other peasant in the Iliad loves being a peasant in the Iliad. Especially, they love it when rich guys tell them to shut up. The people were sorry for Thersites, yet they laughed heartily, and one would turn to his neighbor, saying, Odysseus has done many a good thing ere now, and fight and counsel, but he never did the Argives a better turn than when he stopped this man's mouth from prating further. He will give the kings no more of his insolence. Thus said the people.